us all today the, um, the value of worshiping with our children together. Um, I love children's ministry and believe in it. I love youth ministry and I believe in it. But I believe one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is to worship with them corporately and allow them to see us worship Christ together corporately as a body week in and week out. And so I would encourage you uh, to, uh, to, to devote your whole Sunday mornings to Trinity. That's one of the things we, we say here. And, and don't, don't just send them off to youth ministry or children's ministry while you come here and then leave. Give your children the gift of 18 years of seeing you worship the Lord together. It is, uh, I cannot tell you, the, uh, I cannot impress upon you the importance of that. And so I, I wanted to uh, share that with you today. Before we get to the sermon, though, I want to give you a little bit of an update uh, and a warning that, that comes with it. Excuse me. Uh, if you did not see the email I sent out this week, uh, m- many of you know that uh, starting, I believe it's tomorrow, we've been given a mask mandate by Governor Inslee once again. And the question before us is always, what is the church going to do? Uh, the answer is nothing different than we're already doing. Um, we have asked you to live out your consciences regarding masks, and we would continue to ask the same thing. If you believe that you need to or should wear a mask, please do. And if you believe that you should not, that is okay as well. I want to, uh, I want to give us a warning, though. Uh, and that warning comes out of Revelation 12, verse 10, which says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. One of the things we know from Job and from Revelation is that Satan has access to the very throne room of God in heaven. And one of his favorite activities is to accuse us before God. And over the last couple of years, this verse has really weighed heavily on me because one of the things that it has taught me is that when we do that, when we take up the work of accusing brothers and sisters uh, in Christ of wrongdoing, We are taking up Satan's work. There is a tremendous difference between correction and accusation. And sometimes the difference is only in my own heart. The words may be exactly the same, but my motive is often the difference between correction, whether that those words are for their good, or accusation when those words are for my good. But when we take up accusing brothers and sisters in Christ of sin, we really, we really take up Satan's work. And, and really, uh, what we do is we make ourselves an, an enemy, or at least standing against God. Romans chapter 4, verse 14 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, when I take up the work of accusing brothers and sisters in Christ, not only do I take up Satan's work, I don't make the situation me versus them. I make the situation me versus God. And I promise us all, we will always lose that battle. And so when we come before God and we say, 
God, do you know what that person is doing? He says, yes, but that is covered in Christ. And we say, but Lord, they're, they're doing that thing. And he says, yes, but Jesus. But, but Lord, they really are doing that, and it's wrong. And he says, yes, but Jesus. Now, God's forgiveness in Christ is never an excuse for sin, but when we accuse, it is always the covering for sin. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so if you believe you should wear a mask, I would encourage you to be very, very careful how you think and feel and speak of those who do not. And if you do not think you should wear a mask, I would encourage you the same, to be very careful how you think and feel and speak about those who do. Because each of us has to live out our conscience before God. But to accuse one another of wrongdoing is a very, very dangerous thing, and it it takes up the wrong work. We are to correct one another. We are accountable to one another. But we are to do that for one another's good and not for our own good. And so we are going to continue to ask people to live out their consciences. We know the drill. We know the dangers. We know what's going on. We trust you to make wise decisions. I will ask, however, that if you are sick or symptomatic, please don't just dismiss it as something else. I can only speak personally, but I have family and dear friends who have been hospitalized from COVID this week. Um, I know people who are sick with it. It's gone through our house. Uh, and we, we've seen what, what it can do to people. And uh, I've been in communication with people who have lots of friends and family who are sick and hospitalized and some of them dealing with it quite severely. And so please don't make light of it. Uh, we'll continue to do our best to live stream services so that you can participate if you can't be here. Much of our, con- not much, but some of our congregation is part of the vulnerable uh, population and who, who feel the need also to gather. And so if you are not well, just please re- refrain from coming until you are and, and do so out of care for one another. But be careful how you think and feel about others in Christ. We, we have to be very, very careful of that. Uh, let's turn our attention now to God's word. I will read to you Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, the end of the chapter, and then I will pray. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, 
and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a church that is characterized not by accusation and division, but by peace and forgiveness. That we understand the difference between accountability and correction and accusation. That we uh, deal carefully with the body of Christ that you have purchased with the price of the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. And we would, um, that we would seek to make peace as you have sought to make peace. Lord, we pray for some of our missions partners who work with churches in uh, China and, and uh, who we cannot name this morning, but who you know. Lord, we, we thank you for the praises that they report of healthy churches and churches that are growing and, and churches that are seeing people come to know you and, and are discipling believers. We would also pray for them, Lord, that you, would, um, that you would just help these churches, as some of them are in pastoral searches, uh, to find men to pastor them who take your word seriously and who believe that your word and your spirit is sufficient for the work of the ministry. Lord, we pray for uh, their pastor at their home church that is dealing with cancer and is on hospice and the many difficulties that that church has been through. Lord, we pray that you would give them life and health uh, even in this time as a church and as you uh, seem to be calling this pastor home to yourself, Lord. We pray that your grace might pervade that body and that there might be um, just health among that church, Lord. Lord, we pray for the political tensions that are going on uh, there in China and, and the persecution of churches that comes about as, as part of it and as it's being harder and harder to be a church. Uh, there, even if it's still legal to be a Christian, uh, certainly we know the government's making it harder and harder for churches to be organized and to, uh, to do the work that they have done there. And so we pray just for, again, for health and boldness and your grace in the lives of those churches to continue to spread the gospel and to make uh, disciples, Lord, who, uh, who obey all that you have commanded. Lord, may the word sound forth from them as well as from us. May the gospel go forth and advance from us here and from them there, and may you call people to yourself through. Lord, may we all understand the personal responsibility that we bear in sharing the gospel and taking it to the world uh, that is lost and needs to be reconciled. Lord, we ask also that you would give us today open eyes to understand your word, soft hearts to receive it and obey it. We ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, by God's design... The body of Christ is a universal body. What I mean by that is that across the globe today, every Christian, everywhere, no matter where they are or, or what local assembly they belong to, is part of the body of Christ. And we saw that even in the verse we opened our worship with today in Hebrews chapter 13, where we are told to remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And to remember, and I think Paul, or not, not Paul, I think the author of Hebrews here probably mean, by remember means to pray for. Paul most often uses the term remember when he's talking about himself in that he remembers people in prayer. I remember you in my prayers. And, and he goes on to say what they are praying for. Now, I don't believe the book of Hebrews to be written by Paul, but I think the author of Hebrews here in verse 13 probably has prayer in mind. Remember in your prayers those who are in prison, as though you are in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, 
since you also are in the body. Uh, those Christians who are, uh, who are currently being persecuted underground, hiding, maybe imprisoned or even killed in Afghanistan, we should consider uh, that we would be in those same circumstances since we also are in the body of Christ, this universal body that comprises all believers for all time. But the scriptures don't just use the term body in this universal sense. There is also, uh, in scripture, we often see the word body to be referring to smaller local assemblies of believers. Now that is what the word church means. It means assembly. If we look at it in its lexical form and try and uh, cut it up most um, technically, it means called out. Uh, But really what the word means is assembly. And in fact, we see that all over Scripture. In Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul is in Ephesus. He is sharing the gospel there. People are believing, and this trust in Christ is disrupting the trade in Ephesus of idols made particularly of silver. And Demetrius, one of the silversmiths there in Ephesus, is most disturbed by the fact that he is, his living is being compromised by the gospel. And he incites a riot. And in the latter part of Acts chapter 19, when this riotous mob comes together, it is given to us, the word Luke uses there in Acts chapter 19 to refer to this mob of unbelievers, idolaters, who are angry at Paul for sharing the gospel, is the word ecclesia. It is the word church. This mob is an assembly. We get the word church uh, from uh, the Scottish word kirk, uh, and, and that has its connections to the word ecclesia there. But really, I think often what comes to our minds when we think of the word church, be it a building, be it a location, be it a time that people receive something from some guy standing on the stage in music or preaching or whatever else, is not really what the Bible has in mind when it means church. A church is an assembly of believers. Over the last 20 or 30 years, we've been conditioned with well-meaning phrases like, you are the church. Well, I am not the church. I am only one part of the church. You are not the church. You are merely one part of the church. The local church is an assembly of believers. And where there is no assembly, there is no church. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 shows us that it is God who has ordered this larger universal body into smaller bodies. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Why is it that you are a member of Trinity Church here in Walla Walla? Well, we, you know, we searched out churches, we found a place, we went to a class, we met with an elder, and now we're members. And all of that may be true. But underlying all of that is the sovereign work of God who arranges every believer into local bodies as he chooses. You are part of the assembly of Trinity because God has placed you here. He is the one who has arranged the body. He is the one who calls us out, ecclesia, into the assembling of ourselves together. 
And so we can see the importance of the command in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 to not neglect to meet together. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, we looked in Matthew 28 last week at a very similar construction to what we see here. An imperative, that is a command, something you are told you must do, followed by a series of ing words that then in Greek adopt that command. And so what we find here in, in Hebrews 10, 20, or 24 and 25 is a series of commands. The first one is to consider. Let us consider is this imperative mood verb. We are all to think about something. Particularly, we are to think about how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let me ask you, when you think about the church, do you primarily ponder what you can receive from her or what you can give to her? Do you set a time, uh, aside time to sit and think, how can I be of spiritual benefit to others. How can I provoke others? That's what the word here means. Uh, and, and it can mean in Greek both a negative connotation and a positive connotation. How can I provoke or encourage others to love and good works? That is the first imperative. We are to think about how we might be of spiritual benefit to others. And then there comes a series of participles of ing words that also become commandments. These are called participial commands, and there's a whole reason why. But verse 25, the first of these commands that follows to consider is to not neglect to meet together. This becomes an imperative. We are to not neglect the assembly the gathering of ourselves together. Why not? Because when we gather, we should gather having considered how we might do good to others. But, as we see in the verse, it is the habit of some to neglect to meet together. And we are commanded not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Why not? Because it's not us who simply choose to assemble ourselves. It is the sovereign God who has placed us into assembly. And so we do not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. I think there's a large difference between neglect and the idea of, you know, missing a Sunday. If you miss a Sunday, that is not neglect. But neglect is willful, repeated uh, failure to assemble ourselves together. And some have made that habit, and we are not to be in the habit but rather we are, here's the next command, we are to encourage one another. This word for encourage does not mean to make one feel good about something. That word is actually in our text in Colossians 4 where we're told that, um, uh, that Paul has been encouraged by uh, these, uh, these Jewish men who, who help him out. They have been a comfort to him. This is not the typical word we think of of comfort in Greek. That word is here in verse 10, 24 and 25, where we're told to encourage one another, the word is, is really to come alongside, to be of help to one another. And this ties back to the idea of considering how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. We are to think primarily in terms of how we can be of benefit to the local assembly, not primarily in terms of what we can get out of it. 
far too often I hear from people, they're like, ah, oh, I'm just not sure I get anything out of church. And I'm like, you have completely missed the point. Maybe the reason you're not getting anything out of it is because you're not willing to give anything to it. It's very rare that you get something out of something that you're not willing to invest in. I invested zero dollars into an investment one time and I sat around scratching my head trying to figure out why I didn't get any dividends from it. Okay, not really. But we do that spiritually, right? I don't have to make any investment. I just want the yield. Well, when we're all investors, there is yield in that. And then we're told finally that as we see the day drawing near, there is more need to gather ourselves together and to do good for one another. Now look around. Watch the news. Read Matthew 24 and 25, where the, where the disciples ask, Lord, what is the signs of your coming? And he says, wars, rumors of war, earthquakes, pestilence, which is widespread disease. Now, I'm not saying the Lord's coming back tomorrow. I have no idea when he's coming back. But I'm pretty sure that Matthew 24 and 25, in fact, I'm absolutely sure that Matthew 24 and 25 tell us that we are to live as though he's coming back today. Which means wherever you are in the history of ever, when you read Hebrews 24 and 25, you have more reason, not less, to assemble yourselves together, to stir up one another to love and good works, to not neglect to meeting together, to encourage and help one another, all because God has arranged the body into local assemblies, local gatherings. I think it's becoming more and more common to, to say, and I hear frequently, that, well, really the early church is not what we think of today. It was really just house churches, and people met in house churches, and so we can just have uh, small groups, we can have growth groups, and, and that is the church. I don't really need to assemble uh, myself together with other believers, but I think it fails to really wrestle with and understand what we see in Scripture. In Acts 2, when Paul, or Paul, when Peter preaches his first uh, sermon at Pentecost, there are 3,000 people who are added to that local assembly. And thousands more were added later, and they continued to assemble all of themselves together at the temple, and also from house to house. Now, there's nothing wrong with the house church. Clearly, there was a church that met in, uh, in Colossae in the house of Nympha. But notice Paul does not identify that church as a part of the Colossian church that was scattered no, he's writing to the church in Colossae, and he also gives instructions to another church, this, this church that meets, not a part of the church, but the church that meets in her house. If you want to be part of a, of a house church, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But that should be a church unto itself. We shouldn't take a larger assembly that we call uh, a church and divide it up into smaller parts and say, well, I don't really have to be part of the bigger assembly because I'm part of a smaller assembly. Now, I don't want to make this about numbers because numbers don't matter. When God sends out a missionary, and at the same time, they do matter because in Acts, somebody was counting, right? The church was counting. I'm, but I'm saying uh, the, no, it's not always a measure of faithfulness. There is... Uh, loads of small churches in the world. And there's a bunch of big churches in the world too. And they just have different sets of problems. And we shouldn't criticize one or the other. But if a church wants to be a house church, that's great. It can be a house church. 
And God is glorified when a missionary goes overseas and shares the gospel, and there's one person who is saved and gets baptized, and they begin to take communion, and now you have a church, and it's tiny. God is glorified in that. But, but a church is an assembly. And if we say that we are an assembly here at Trinity, then we must not neglect to gather together. There's nothing wrong with small churches. But in, church, in Acts, the church in Jerusalem was not a bunch of small groups. It was an assembly that also met from house to house. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul makes it clear that he expects that the body is made up of many. He tells us that it is the act of communion that draws the line of who is inside and outside the church. Because there, we who are many partake of the one bread, we are one body. But notice he does not say that we who are few are one because we partake of the one body. He says the many are one because we partake of the one bread. And the reason for that is not because of the size of the church. He's totally okay with the church meeting in the house of Nympha that would be one house uh, or one church unified together in the breaking of bread and the taking of communion. But in, in, in Corinth, it was a large church. And so the many there assembled themselves to participate in communion and in worship. And so if you call Trinity your home, church, but you neglect the gathering of the church, you're in sin. Plain and simple. If you would prefer a smaller church, that's okay too. But when we say this is part of the church that I'm going to participate in, this is the larger assembling of, of believers that I'm going to call my home church, you have a responsibility uh, to uh, each other in this room, but also to, to, to God to assemble yourselves, ourselves, together. What is the point of all of this? The point is, I think what we see Paul tell us in these last verses of Colossians show us both the goodness and the struggles of what it means to gather ourselves as a body of believers. Paul didn't say, hey, gather yourselves, one body, many parts, but I'm a missionary, so I'm going rogue. No, he lived out what he believed. And we see that here in all of its wonders and all of its difficulties. Because the truth of the matter is, being part of a church isn't always easy. But in my experience, easy and good rarely go hand in hand. Almost never. The best things in life are hard. And they require work, and so it is with the church. And so in the time we have remaining today, very briefly and quickly, I want to point out each of these eight people who Paul lists in his closing and what he wrote about them and, and, and see how that, what that has to do for us and with us uh, in the church. So first, there is Tychicus in verses 7 and 8. And Tychicus is just this steady servant with Paul. The word Tychicus means fortunate. And maybe this goes both ways. Maybe Paul considers him fortunate for having a Tychicus in his life. And certainly Tychicus was probably fortunate for having spent time with Paul. Tychicus first appears to us in Acts chapter 20 on Paul's third missionary journey. Paul was trying to get to Macedonia to take up a collection 
of money to support the church in Jerusalem. That church in Jerusalem had grown so large that the church outgrew the economy in this small town. And so people could not eat. They, there was, the economy just could not sustain the number of people. And so churches in other areas stepped in and provided financially for the church there in Jerusalem to be able to eat and to survive. And so uh, Paul was going to take this collection and take it to, Gentile, to, to Jerusalem. And Tychicus, a Gentile, was going to be one of the people who accompanied that money and Paul back to Jerusalem. Of course, Paul never makes it back to Jerusalem there. I don't know if the money did or not off the top of my head, but, but it just didn't work out that way. But so clearly, Tychicus is trusted uh, uh, with Paul. Um, for several years after this, and through a couple of imprisonments, Paul or Tychicus remains a companion of Paul. When uh, Titus was possibly leaving Crete at the end of the book of Titus, this island uh, south of Greece, or that is part of Greece, Tychicus was considered as one of the men who may pastor that church in Titus's stead. And at the writing of Colossians, uh, we find, well, and, and not, not, not just that, but when Paul wanted to see Timothy before his death, and he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus for Timothy to come to him there, he knew that that church could not be left without a pastor. And so Tychicus was sent to Ephesus to pastor that church in Timothy's absence. This was a trusted companion of Paul. And at the writing of Colossians, we find that Tychicus had been with Paul for four years. And he is now delivering three letters simultaneously, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. I think the letter referred to at the end of Colossians here, the letter from Laodicea, is what we call Ephesians. I think these three letters went together. And to say that this was an arduous and dangerous journey would, would be uh, not inappropriate. And so, but Tychicus is just willing and faithful to serve Paul in whatever way he can. You want me to go to Macedonia and Jerusalem? I'll go. You want me to go to Crete? I'll go. You want me to go to Ephesus? I'll go. You want me to take this journey to Colossae and to uh, Ephesus and Laodicea? I'll go. And so look how Paul describes him. He says, my fellow prisoner, my fellow... Oh, I got the wrong, wrong paragraph there. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother. This was a man who was loved by Paul and a faithful minister. The word there for minister is diakonos. A faithful servant is really what that word means. And then a fellow servant, which is the word doulos, slave in the Lord. He is a beloved brother, a faithful servant and a fellow slave of Jesus Christ. There have been lots of tears shed over phone calls to my house this week from people who are sad and grieving and even worried about the fact that Jean Reister is in the hospital and that she is on a ventilator and that she is not doing well. And the reason these tears have been shed as we hear stories from people uh, of what she has done is because she has been a Tychicus to many. Uh, she has been a faithful servant, somebody who has loved these families well. Who is your Tychicus? Who is somebody who serves you well? But also, considering Hebrews 10, who are you a Tychicus to? Who are you serving faithfully and well? Second here, we see Onesimus. Now, if, if Tychicus is this faithful servant, Onesimus is the guy with a shady past. 
Uh, Colossae is Onesimus' hometown. He was a slave, and he ran away. He took off. Somewhere along the lines, he gets saved as part of Paul's ministry, and Paul begins to disciple him. And now, at the writing of this letter, and coupled with Philemon, who was the owner of Onesimus, Paul is sending him back. Now, could you imagine how uh, anxious Onesimus might be? He's the runaway slave, and now Paul is sending him back to the very place where he ran away from. But the master who he ran away from it was a believer, and now Onesimus is a believer, uh, a runaway slave become Christian, and Paul is sending him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And he says, whatever, was, whatever this man owes you, charge it to my account. Sometimes people run away. Sometimes people wrong us. Sometimes people do something hard and hurtful and harmful, and they take off. And then God, in his infinite grace and wisdom, restores them to us. Not as offenders, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. This required uh, boldness on Onesimus' part, but it required grace on Philemon's part. If you remember in the book of Colossians, chapters 1 and 2 were mostly giving us truth. And chapters 3 and 4 were application of that truth. Philemon is also application of the truth that is in Colossians 1 and 2. And so if you want to understand Colossians uh, better, or if you want to understand Philemon better, you need Colossians 1 and 2 to do that, as Philemon uh, is, is uh, a Christian here in Colossae, and Paul is returning this runaway slave. But which are you? Are you the runaway returned? Or are you the one who needs to show grace to a runaway? Read Philemon. It will encourage you greatly. But we must be those who give grace and relate to one another on the basis of what Christ has done, not on the basis of what we have done to each other. Thirdly, there is Aristarchus, a, a present companion. Uh, though Jewish, he bears here a Greek name. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. A native of Thessalonica, he began with Paul in Ephesus and was loyal to Paul even through the riots there in Acts chapter 19, which we've already mentioned. And here he is once again with Paul in his imprisonment. And Paul calls him a fellow prisoner. It is really, really unlikely that, that uh, Aristarchus was forced to be in prison. This is probably willful and his choosing. Paul was going to prison and he's going to prison with him. And he was just present with Paul. And so Paul calls him his fellow prisoner. Sometimes life is filled with trials, difficulties, hardships, what feels like imprisonments and impossible things. And we need friends who can just be present with us. We need people who will just sit up, show up and sit with us in jail. So often, though, I hear from people who are like, you know, I know so-and-so is going through something really hard, but I've just been avoiding them because I don't know what to say that'll help. I don't know how to fix it for them. I don't know how to say anything that would be an encouragement to them. And my encouragement to you is stop trying to fix it. When somebody's going through something hard, when they're grieving, when they're hurting, when there are trials, don't ask, how can I fix it? Just like Aristarchus, be the kind of friend who will show up and be present. Aristarchus couldn't get Paul out of jail. He wasn't able to fix any of Paul's suffering, but he was able to faithfully walk through him with it. And to be honest, 
at least in my experience, I can't, say, I can't say this as a rule, but certainly in my experience, it has been the church and only the church where friends like this are found. Where there are friends like this who will just show up and sit through what's hard. I'm reading Job right now. Job's friends would have been better off uh, to, to stay where they began, just sitting with him, and then when they opened their mouths, everything fell apart. Aristarchus was just present. Fourth, there is Mark. Mark is the restored deserter. Sometimes our friends abandon us. Sometimes they leave us. Sometimes they do so painfully. Mark, or who is sometimes called John Mark, was with Paul on his first missionary journey. And somewhere along the lines, Mark's like, this is too tough. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And he heads back. When it comes time for Paul to set out on his second missionary journey with Barnabas, who is Mark's cousin, uh, Barnabas wants to take Mark along with him. And Paul says, that deserter? No way is that guy coming with us. And the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas was so sharp that they actually ended up parting company over it. And they they went separately to minister. But somewhere along the lines, a little bit maybe like Onesimus. God gets a hold of Mark and changes something in him to the point where later Paul calls, and you can read about all that in Acts chapter 13, later Paul calls Mark useful to him and calls for him to come to him. But here we see that that this reconciliation has probably happened. Mark, again verse 10, the cousin of Barnabas concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, Welcome him. Welcome him. He'd been restored at this point. Whatever his offense was, was was fixed, and the grace of God was bringing him to be welcomed in. This is what the gospel does in relationship. It heals. It restores. We have to be so careful here, because when, when we refuse to forgive, fundamentally what we're saying is, well, I believe that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to to secure God's forgiveness. But it's not sufficient to secure mine. And even if we say we will have forgiveness, but we don't have reconciliation, then we say, well, the death of Jesus is sufficient to reconcile that person to God. Oh, but, but it's not sufficient to reconcile that person to me. What an offense to the cross that must be. If the cross secures God's forgiveness and reconciliation, it can easily secure ours. I read a great article by Tim Keller recently on forgiveness. and One of the things it said in there was that reconciliation must be experienced before it is felt. Oh, how true that is. If you need to be reconciled to somebody and you're waiting to feel reconciled before you act reconciled, you're going to be waiting a long time. We must act as though we've been reconciled in Christ because we have, and those feelings come along. But, but notice that the gospel not only restores Mark to his ministry, but restores Mark to Paul. Do you let grace permeate your relationships? Are you willing to be restored to people or to have people restored to you? Maybe some of your most helpful companions will be those who has, have offended you at some point in time, but who, have, who now God has restored to you. I mean, this is just the reality of it. Churches are filled with sinful people like you and me. 
We're going to disappoint one another. We're going to hurt one another. It's guaranteed. But that's not the point. The point is that Jesus never will. He will never sin against you. He will never hurt you. He will never betray you. He will never abandon you. When I hear people say, oh, you know, I used to go to church, but somebody hurt me and now I don't go anymore, it is a clear indication to me that people were the reason they went to church. Because if people are the reason you go to church, people will be the reason you quit. But if God is the reason you go to church, then only God can be the reason you quit. I've said over and over for the last year, and I'm going to continue to maintain, if I haven't disappointed you or hurt you yet, I will. I guarantee that. My job is not to be perfect. My job is to stand up here week in and week out and point you to the one who is, who will never disappoint, never hurt, never sin, never do anything against you. He is the one whom we can trust, and he is the one who gathers us into local assemblies. Fifthly, we see this guy, Jesus, called justice. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Joshua, which means savior, and justice means righteous. So this guy is the righteous Savior. Now, certainly he's not the Jesus we think about when we talk about Jesus all the time, but he bears a name. This is uh, very similar. This is the only verse about him in the Bible, and we don't know much about him. But what we do see is that his faithfulness was a great encouragement to Paul. Verse 11, and Jesus who is called Justice. These three, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, are the only men of the circumcision, that is the only Jews, who are his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a great comfort to me. This word comfort here is the word that, that more relates to something that feels good rather than just being helped. There, the fact that these three Jewish men, and no doubt Paul was disturbed by the lack of Jewish response to the gospel. We see that in Romans 9 as, as the, that chapter opens up and Paul is languishing over the fact that the Jews have not believed in this Christ who God sent to them and had promised to them. And so these three men were a great encouragement to Paul. Again, the church has been the only place that I have found friends like this who are ever-present, ever-faithful, and never-giving up. Sixthly, we come to Epaphras. Epaphras is the persistent prayer. He is the one who is wrestling in prayer. And the reality is that prayer is hard work. Prayer is not natural work. Prayer is supernatural work. And we are, we have to, prayer is wrestling. It is difficult. It is not easy. And yet Epaphras was willing to wrestle with one another. In the context of the community, you have to be present for people to, to be able to do this with you and to be able to do that to others. If you come in last minute, sit through a service and leave, first off, you can't consider how to be spiritual good to others, but you'll never know how to pray for one another or how to have others pray for you. It is when we linger in relationships, when we come to corporate prayer and have a meal together afterwards, when we get involved in a growth group and we know one another. I know for a certain, I got a text thread on my phone filled with my growth group. Something goes wrong, I can text them in an instant and say, pray for me. And they're all going to respond. My phone's going to like blow up. We're praying right now. Two things, don't ever tell people you'll pray for them and not pray for them. And number two, it's better to pray with people than for people. I mean, it's good to pray for people, but if somebody says, will you pray for me? Say, yeah, can we pray about that right now? And pray with them. It doesn't have to be long prayers. Uh, Matthew 5, God's not going to hear your prayer more if you pray uh, 30 minutes versus 30 seconds. We do want to be persistent in prayer, but we also have to understand we're finite. 
If you give me a prayer request and it's urgent, it goes in one place in my prayer journal in red, and I'll pray for that every day if it's time-sensitive and urgent. But some of these longer prayer requests that are more lengthy that, that get sent in, those go in a different section of my prayer journal, and I don't pray for all of them every day. I, I, I don't have time to pray for everyone in the church and everything every day. I just try and be faithful to systematically pray through one thing after another after another. And if I don't write it in my prayer journal right away, ch chances are it's going to be forgotten. So I have to make a note for myself. But we, we have to know each other well enough to be persistent with each other in prayer. I cannot fix the struggles, the storms, the persecutions, the trials, the griefs in your life any more than you can fix them for anybody else but we can take them to the feet of the sovereign God if we can and leave things where they belong in his kind and gentle and loving care. And so we are to be persistently praying for one another. Seventh, there's Luke. Luke is the trained caretaker. One uh, commentator I read called him the prototype medical missionary. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament outside of Acts um, so we don't know much that of the attendant circumstances of his believing. You can clearly see in Acts about the time frame of where he believed because everything in, uh, in Acts shifts from uh, second person or third person, rather plural, they and them, to first person plural, us and we. You can clearly see in Acts where Luke joins the group as Luke is the author of Luke, the, the gospel that bears his name, and of Acts, the only Gentile author in scripture, but he was a physician. He, he had a skill, and he was Luke's, I mean, he was Paul's physician. Uh, but what we see here is that, that the church is, is filled with many people who are trained in many skills. Are you willing to use your talents and abilities for the good of others in the church? Do you know others well enough to know where you can meet those needs with what talents and abilities God has given you? Do you know people well enough that when you have a need, you can make it known? Are you humble enough to ask for help when you have a need? Luke was present to meet the needs of Paul. Eighth and finally is Demas, and Demas is the apostate. Demas is a hurtful man to Paul. Demas was a faithful companion and fellow worker with Paul until he wasn't. And in first, or 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 10, Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. Uh, that's where Timothy came from, Ephesus. Verse 10, for Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You cannot be both in love with the present world and saved. You cannot love the world more than Christ and claim to have salvation. He appeared uh, through some growth and some apparent ministry to be one who was saved, but in the end, his love for the present world uh, showed exactly where he was, and he had de deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica. Sometimes friends fail us. Sometimes they desert us. Sometimes they hurt us. Paul had Demas, and Jesus had Judas. Relationships are hard sometimes. In the church, they're hard sometimes. Sometimes they can hurt, and we can feel abandoned and betrayed. And it's really, really easy to get self-protective. Usually there's one circumstance, or maybe it's a, a set of circumstances, that, that people are like, you know what? I'm done with the church. This was too hurtful. I'm out of here. 
But the reality is, when we look at Paul, when we look at the numbers, here's eight men. One of them he had trouble with, but was restored to. One of them he had trouble with and was never restored to. But six and seven, if you count the restoration of the people in the list, were people who were of positive benefit to him. Oftentimes what we do is we look at the one or the two people in the church who hurt us and we say, I can't have anything to do with that place. And we ignore the 200 who have loved us and cared for us and been of spiritual good to us. We can't let the hurts of one or two uh, write off the whole thing. And we, like Jesus and like Paul, must be willing to have those people restored to us. Can't, we can't let them cause us to withdraw from the body of Christ. We can't blame people and say, oh, since people aren't trustworthy, I give up on the church. Remember, people aren't the reason we participate in the church. God is. And Jesus will never disappoint, never hurt, never fail, never sin against us. He is the reason we gather, because if you are a member of Trinity, he has placed you in this body for a reason to participate in the church. The substance of Colossians is Christ. We see Christ from beginning to end. But here at the end, we, we see this secondary benefit that when we come to Christ, we don't only get a Savior, we get a family. Family's messy. Which one of us here does not have a messy family? But it's good. It's good. And God is redeeming it. Paul's various remarks after this list of men is easy enough to understand, and I'll leave you to that on your own. But I want to draw out one final thought from this section. Look at verse 17. Paul says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says, To each, is to each one of us in the body, to each one in the local assembly, to each person here is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has given you abilities, talents, skills, wisdom, knowledge, the ability to pray for the common good. And he looks here at Archippus and says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And no doubt these seven people stand as an encouragement, and even eight because Demas doesn't fulfill his job, are an encouragement to fulfill this ministry that he has received in the Lord. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that as part of Trinity, you have been given a ministry to this body. You have been given a set of talents or skills or abilities or opportunities to serve the common good. Your job is to fulfill that ministry. You have received a ministry in the Lord. See to it that you fulfill that ministry. Lord, make us a church that is united like this, that is relational like this, that knows one another well enough and lingers in relationships to be able to share difficulties, hurts, struggles, pains. Lord, let us see that the, the death of Christ is not only sufficient to reconcile us to you and to offer forgiveness, but to, to secure our forgiveness and reconciliation. Lord, each and every one of us in this room has been given a ministry for the common good. By your Spirit, would you help us to see to it that we fulfill that ministry and that our love and unity and peace and willing to reconcile, not our perfection, but our living in grace 
to be a witness and a testimony to the world around us of what you have done in us and of the truthfulness and goodness of the death and resurrection of Christ to save us, not only from your wrath, but also from ourselves and our sinfulness. And may you be glorified in it all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Look for 